Today is Sunday, June 4th, and this is Celtics Beat on the CLNS Media Network, the leading online provider of audio-video coverage of the Boston Celtics. I'm Adam Kaufman. Episode 522 features Barstool Sports Celtics writer Dan Greenberg. And I'm Evan Valenti, and this show is powered by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. Okay, here we go again. Welcome to June. Welcome to Celtics Beat. You know how it is, how it's all going right now for all of us. Adam Kaufman and Valenti, Dan Greenberg, Barstool Greeny is back here with us. This is kind of a, uh, a continuation of the postmortem and also turning the page to what is to come in this offseason. There's a lot being written about, including by Greeny here and, and many uh, national pundits around the country as well. And uh, guys, I'm just, I'm still a little bit sick to my stomach that we're even, you know, Here's the problem, Ev, with doing a show twice a week. And we're thrilled. Sure. Thank you to our partners that, that we have the opportunity to do a show twice a week. That's great. I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. But the problem doing this show twice a week now is that I don't, I don't want to. Greeny, how the hell are they not playing tonight? How are they not playing tonight? Why is it game two between the Nuggets and Heat? Well, because they choked a game seven, unfortunately. I mean, just, that's just the reality of the situation. And, I, and I'm with you. I think, you know, every time I turn on my computer to write something, when I saw your text message the other day, it's just like, you got to get, you got to get through the pain. I think, I think part of it is therapy. Part of it is just self triggering. Like I'm going to get upset with whatever the hell we talk about today. It's going to make me upset. And I just, you know, I watch these games. I watch game one of the finals. Every heat miss, every shot Jimmy Butler passed up, every turnover they didn't cause. It's just like, it's, it's going to be a long series. I'm hoping the Nuggets just put it out of their misery in like four or five because every every possession I'm just like, this should be the Celtics if they just didn't play like assholes. But such is our life. Can I What's fun about question? Hang on, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your postmortem here, in your conversation with friends and family and whoever you might come across. Your psychiatrist, whoever it may be. Yeah, right. Um, I have an interesting – the main discussion that I've had with fans after this game, after this series is, man, Game 7 was really over, like, real quick because Tatum got hurt on the first play and there's, there was nothing they could do about it. Mm-hmm. Like, just nothing – it happened right. It was done right there. Like, it, and, and unless they got a Miami Heat in performance out of their role players, just was never going to happen without the Celtics' best player playing like he has in Game Seven throughout his entire career. Like, that they, doesn't they, feel like but, excuse making to you. But like, that's kind of like, what if Jimmy Butler got hurt in the first play and like wasn't the same guy? Like, put in my aren't the Bucks season that we didn't have Chris Middleton excuse for like three straight years now? Like, yeah, but don't you feel like I? Don't you feel like we're above that? It, whether you it know, I just, I, of course, it happened, and and I just, I don't feel having watched that game, and I realized Jason Tatum was not Jason Tatum in any way, shape, or form. So, like, there are plenty of nights, for instance, that his shot may be off, but he's doing other things. He's rebounding well. He's facilitating well. He's defending well. So he's still helping you out, even though he's not scoring. 30, 35 points. So 
you know, we, we've accepted that. We've seen that obviously in certain games. So in those instances, you can say, all right, you won with the subpar or, or not your standard Jason Tatum performance. And that's okay. And if the injury limited him across the board and you just weren't going to get that, he was a shell of himself, quote unquote, as he said, then yeah, like, maybe just maybe he would have erupted in this alternate universe where he doesn't roll his ankle in, in the first minutes moments of the game and you end up winning. Like I'm I'm not going to say that's impossible, but having watched that game start to finish and a lot of people turned it off before it even ended, but watching that thing start to finish, I didn't feel like you were a standard Jason Tatum performance away from winning that game. It was that lopsided. You might've been, a crazy Jason Tatum performance away from winning that game, a la game seven against Philly, or maybe even something, you know, a middle ground, a median Tatum performance between his normal and that. But everybody else collectively basically crapped the bed. Brown was about the worst he's been all season long. The role players, generally speaking, did not perform. Brogdon never should have been on the floor in the first place. There were so many things that went wrong that went beyond the Tatum injury that, to me, even a healthy Tatum wasn't necessarily enough to win that game. And that's why, to me, it just feels like an excuse. Where do you fall in there? Yeah, I would say I generally agree with Adam, where it's like if the entire roster showed up, right, and they put up an effort and execution that would normally – in normal circumstances, warrant a win. You could say, all right, if Tatum Tatum was the only one that was compromised, that's more of a legitimate reason. But that's not what happened, right? Smart was awful. Jalen was awful. Horford couldn't hit a shot. Grant didn't do anything. Brogdon obviously was hurt, even though, you know, we knew that going in. I think where you look at it is his injury impacted how everyone else then had to play to maybe overcompensate for it. But if you remember, they made four of their first six shots. So it's like they were able to survive for that first six minutes or whatever it was. And then they missed 18 of 21. So it's (laughs) like, you know, it's hard for me to be like, oh, everything would be drastically different if your entire team, like I don't think he took too many shots during that 18 of 21 stretch where they just couldn't make anything. I mean, Rob's missing layups. Brogdon's missing layups. It was just, it was just a collective like egg by everyone on the roster that was just they never were able to make the comeback. I feel like because they didn't have the healthy Tatum, but that injured Tatum is not why they got down in the first place. And the Heat also went back to hit every single shot. Miami Heat that like all these circus shots or hand in your face, like they just. Obviously not in the literal sense, but it felt like they could not miss in that game, which, you know, it really is like I, I saw that. I don't remember if Greeny, had, I think maybe you quote tweeted it, but Grandy had the tweet uh, with like the Miami Heat in the regular season. Sh- I'm making these numbers up, but I'm in the range. Miami Heat in the regular season shot 34 percent in the first two rounds of the playoffs. They shot 36 percent in the conference finals against the Cel- against the Celtics shot like 43, 44%, and then game one against uh, the Nuggets shot 34%. Like, it, it was such, it was just such a perfectly outlier series for Miami, and, and like, credit where it's due. I don't necessarily think Boston just 
had no clue how to defend the heat, you know, and, and there is a, a make miss element. There's a certain amount of luck where the Celtic shots, even wide open looks were not falling into heats wide open looks. It felt like they were all falling, but that's just kind of the way it went. That that's sort of why, and I, it doesn't matter. This is such a semantic conversation. You will never ever convince me, even if the heat somehow win a championship, which they will not, by the way, the nuggets are going to win this thing probably relatively quickly. But even if somehow Miami wins this title, you will not convince me, quote unquote, the better team won the series. The Celtics are the better team. They are I the deeper team. They, they didn't play better. <laughs> they did not play better, but they yeah. are the better, deeper, more talented team. I don't know. Evan, you may remember this when we were having a, just as a depressing conversation this time last year when we were talking about the whole, you know, matchup with Golden State, did the better team win? I just hate that argument because, like, what good does it mean to be stacked up on paper if your better talent doesn't produce? In that series, they were not the better team. It's not like they were neck and neck all series and lost a game seven on a prayer half-court heave, right? They were severely outplayed in every single one of their losses. So it's like in three of the seven games, the Heat shot over 50% from three. So it's like, yes, in the bigger picture, on paper, if you were to draft each player, you would pick more Celtics before more Heat guys maybe. Sure. But who gives a crap when on the floor, your best players are getting outplayed? I, I didn't think that was the case in Golden State. I don't think that's the case in Miami series. It's like, don't tell me you're the better team because if you're the better team, you should be able to find ways to win. The truth of the matter is you weren't the better team in that series, regardless of the talent on your roster. And as, as painful as that may be to admit, like people are still saying, Oh, you know, if like, if the, the, the heat go into the finals and get swept, that means they shouldn't have been there. No, it means they earned their pick to go to the finals. They just played a better team in the Nuggets. So I just I just can't stand it. Let me put it this way. If the Celtics were to win that series, no, in the game seven, no one would be like, oh, man, they got outplayed, but they pulled out a prayer in game seven. So I don't think you can say, oh, the Heat weren't as good of a team. They just pulled out a prayer in game seven. When they beat you four out of seven times, that pretty much – is all you need to know. No, if the, if the Celtics had won Game Four, we would or Game Seven rather, we all would have been you know fanboying and saying you know a la O four Sox coming back to beat the Yankees. They're never going to lose again. They're going to yeah. win four straight against Denver parade in two weeks. Like this is going to be unbelievable. Uh, I don't know how you guys felt, but watching Game One between the Nuggets and Heat, my if if I you know like remove the Celtics bias, like put you know take off the footy pajamas or whatever, my prevailing and I kind of felt this way I said it on the podcast multiple times I kind of felt this way even going you know just like midway through the conference finals when we were talking about Denver but actually watching it play out Denver Miami game one my prevailing takeaway from that game as I watched it was I don't think Boston was beating Denver anyway well, I, you can't do that. Like, they're, enti- they're entirely different matchups. Of course. You know? I know. I, no, but different matchup. They match up better. Like, I do think the Celtics match up better than the Heat do. I, I think it would have been a, a longer, more competitive series than what I believe Miami's going to give Denver. I just based that on Denver's talent is so much greater, so much deeper than that of Miami's. And these, and even if 
Porter has a bad shooting night, as we saw in game one, or, or Murray's, you know, a little bit quieter as he was in the second half of game one, or, you know, some of these role players don't whatever. Like, Jokic never has a bad game, yeah. period. Even if he has a bad game, he flirts with or has a triple-double. Nikola Jokic is never just off and invisible. It doesn't happen. It literally never, ever happens. He will not phantom game you. And I, I just think he is enough, as long as he has enough around him, which he does, they're all healthy. If he is, if, if he's just baseline Jokic or even a little bit worse, I think most teams generally don't stack up well against them. I think this is their time. Yeah, I mean, it very well could be their time. I mean, Jokic is in the prime of his career. He's a two-time MVP. They have great talent around him. I just I just think, listen, they split. The Celtics and Nuggets split during the year, each one on their own home floor. Um, the Celtics have been competitive in Ball Arena over the last couple of years. And I just think, like, you know, they gave up 30 wide-open looks to the Heat in game one, and the Heat only made, like, 13 of them. So one would think when the Celtics aren't playing the black voodoo magic of the Miami Heat and they can shoot at a respectable team average from, you know, on open looks, I just think there's a different dynamic to how those two teams play that, you know, they still may lose the series, but I don't think people would be saying, you know, nuggets and four, nuggets and five, especially because while it wasn't, while it wasn't, you know, the, the altitude of Denver, had they won game seven, Maybe they would have figured out their games at home, you know, and they would have started with the first two in Boston. So you just, I don't know. It's a dangerous game to play. I just would rather not think about it at all, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's a terrible um, thing, though. And I just, where with Kaufman, I, I sort of agree with that because it's just the, the Celtics at home, like, weren't, it wasn't a thing. Like, they just, they allowed people to come in there and win games routinely. I mean, and the, the other flip side of that is Denver has been so unbelievable at home this postseason that I, I mean, I, I, as a, a team as Boston who has gone on the road and won a lot of big games, I mean, it's, it's, there's, I mean, game six, game seven last year, game six, game six this year are all big road games, but like going into Denver and winning and stealing one would be hard. And that's the, like, I can't, I don't know if I can summon the amount of, you know, green, uh, you know, colored mm-hmm. goggles. I don't know if I can I can put that on and see Boston stealing one in, in Denver. They've been outrageously tough at home in Boston. Yeah, but remember they are nineteen and they are nineteen and twenty two on the road this year. That is true. That is true. But Boston's like, like home court advantage didn't exist in the playoffs, which was really weird because they were excellent. It hasn't for multiple for years. Now. This isn't a new thing. Yeah. What is that? I mean, what is this? This is like two straight years in the postseason not being at home. What is what? what I, and it's not like the crowd sucks. That's the one thing about Denver. Their crowd in game one, like, was so uninspired, <laughs> uninspiring for the first finals game in franchise history. I was like, is everybody here just, like, kind of checked out? Like, what is this? Yeah, I just... It's, it's the it's the reefer. Hey, yeah, good. I just think when you looked at the difference, because I felt like, obviously, watching on TV, you could, like, feel the game seven energy, you know, through your TV. And I also thought the crowd was great in game five. The difference was in game five... They got off to that quick start, right? They they didn't have, you know, what was it, like 10 to 3 or 13 to 3, like right away. And I think that allowed the Celtics to exhale. In game seven, the, the Heat started 2 of 11, and the Celts didn't get any sort of separation. 
and you're starting to get like, oh shit. You're like, now you're nervous and you're getting tight. And I think it was Brogdon even said it after the game. He was like, we, we played a little tight and you could see it when, when you didn't get that initial bump and the crowd was taken out of it. It's like, well, what good does your crowd do you if you weren't able to maximize it? Now you're only dealing with this nervous tension of, oh my God, they're going to blow this. And then once Tatum was too banged up to really lead you that charge, it was just a snowball effect. Did Brogdon say anything about the team being up three when he came in and down 12 when he came out? I don't think so. You know, his comment, he did a lot of talking for someone that had himself an interesting postseason. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I appreciate the sort of veteran leader aspect of it all. And I, and I do like Brogdon. So I don't want this to turn into some sort of, I feel like a lot of the commentary and I've been guilty of it. Like I've gotten into multiple arguments with people all over Twitter about Brogdon and the year that he had and where he fits going forward, just contractually, never mind Brogdon, the player, but just sort of how it all makes sense. But yeah, I mean, there were not six man of the year. He had a very productive regular season. He was important. I'm not second guessing the trade. You, you, you make even knowing what you know, now you make it again, like all of it. But for a dude that's never won anything, you know, coming in here, like had never, I don't, had he ever gotten out of the first round before? And to now, like you said, he, there was a, a lot of talking as the playoffs went along for someone that was not contributing a whole hell of a lot. Well, it's just like, what, what bothered me is like, you know, he's talking about their defense and the regression there. And it's like, well, hold on a second, man. You, of the three guards, he was, he probably had the worst defensive run in the playoffs of any of any guard. So it's like you're kind of talking noise on Joe for his defensive philosophies and, you know, not being this defensive-oriented team. Well, part of that is because they had to play you, who got targeted and attacked in almost every playoff series. And I think, you know, once he got hurt, it was kind of like, listen, I mean, you can't get on a guy for tearing his tendon, but, like, Don't you know. Play him. That's not Joe. Probably – this was probably going to be the best Brogdon year you're going to get. He played in 67 games, which is his most since his rookie year. He was pretty much healthy all the way through when it mattered most, unfortunately. But I think, you know, I don't know what you guys were expecting when he came over, but he seemed like a much more tunnel vision offensive guard as opposed to the calm everybody down, set the table guard, which everyone wanted to trade Marcus Smart for him you know, a year prior because he was supposed to be this pass first point guard. I didn't, I never really felt like he filled that calm everybody down late in games. I mean, he threw the ball to Tyrese Maxey at the end of game one of the Sixers series. Literally, like he had a green jersey on. Right. So it's like, I don't think they get as far as they did without him. I thought his shooting was incredible against Philly. He was solid against the Hawks and obviously was sixth man of the year. But like, the things that he was supposed to bring, whether it was defensive versatility or that set the tape. Like, how many times did you see Brogdon throw a lob to Rob in any of their minutes together on right. the court? So I think when they look towards the future, you got to say, hey, here's a guy who's going to enter his low 30s. He's at $22 million for the next two years. Do you have to sell high? Because this may be the best version of Brogdon you're going to get. Now, next thing you know, he's 32, making 22 and a half million, and you can't move him for the same type of package. It's, it's going to be, I don't know what they do. 
So let me let me devil's advocate this thing for a second, because this is I agree with a lot of what you said. But what Twitter would say back to that, as you well know, you have, you know, a, a, a frequent discourse with people. What what the royal Twitter would say back to that. I don't know why I'm quote fingering like Sorry. so much here, but whatever. What What Twitter would say back to you is, well, that's what Joe asked him to be. That's that's yeah. he came in and filled the role that the coaching staff asked of him. They wanted him to be this guy. They wanted him to be more of an offensive guy, more of a three point shooter, more of a, you know, less on the defense. Da, 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 da. Do you agree with that criticism? Do you agree with that feedback? Or do you think that we just got a different player than he had been in recent years? Um, I think partly. I think offensively that may have been the case, right? Because he was the spark plug, you know, scoring option in his minutes. The defensive part, I think people are taking this de-emphasization or whatever on defense a little too far. Like, you still have to guard your yard, even if you want to be a more offensive-oriented team. And up and down the roster, every Celtics individual isolation defense regressed. From Tatum to Brown to Smart to Horford to White. So how much of that is the rules changing? How much is that the game changing? How much is that is strategy it's probably a combination of both but like when i'm seeing james harden attack malcolm brogdon or jimmy butler attack malcolm brogdon and scoring with these that's not oh that's joe system joe system is you know let guys dribble right by you and get to the rim like that doesn't i think that's taking it a little far i think where they were maybe a little surprised is we didn't really see the playmaking and that set the table in pressure moment player, right? When he first came in, he said, oh, they brought me in here to calm things down late, get everybody organized. Like, where was that for him to tell Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, hey, you go over here down the stretch, stop trying to attack it, you know, a zone from the wing. Like, that stuff didn't happen. And I don't think that is because of Joe's system. I just think that's that was their limitation that ultimately ended their season is whether it was Joe or Tatum, or Smart, or Brogdon, or whoever, nobody realized in the moment they had to adjust how they were attacking Miami's defense. And until that has buy-in from the players and recognition from the coaches, you're not going to see anything different, no matter who is on the roster. They could trade Jalen Brown. They could trade Marcus Smart. If your players are still going to be in those situations and play the same way, I personally don't think the combination of talent matters. Well, the thing about Brogdon, uh, he gave you half of what you needed. He, when the last season ended, the one thing that Kaufman, you'll notice that I said a lot on the show is the Jays need help when, you know, to pick up the scoring load. And I think Brogdon throughout most of the regular season, uh, did that. He was a guy that was a straight line to the basket guy, get the basket. Uh, you know, obviously six man had a lot to do with him scoring a lot. Um, one of the best three point shooters in the league this year. He gave them that. But the other part of it is, you know, someone to help the offense when things get bogged down and things get tight. I still think that at the end of the day, that's going to be a primarily Jason Tatum thing. I do believe in, and I've, and this is now me, the second offseason where I believe in point Tatum, but I've seen enough in these playoffs to believe that there is a guy in there that can do that. I mean, he's still learning at 25 years old how to really manipulate defenses to the best of his abilities. We haven't fully seen what everything's going to look like when he's fully polished yet. I've seen enough the past two postseasons to say that's going to be the guy that does this. When Boston finally hits its stride, Tatum's going to be the one that's going to be controlling everything. 
Um, I, as much as I love Smart, I, I just don't know if that's really best suited for him late in games when pressure's really on. As much as I love him, I love him to death. I think, it, and we all know it's just not Jalen Brown's role. They just don't even bother, you know? Um, Derek White's a guy you want out there when the game's in line because he knows how to move the basketball and get guys, you know, the ball they need to get them. But I still think at the end of the day, it's going to be Tatum that does that. So with Brodden going forward, I think we all can agree he's probably not long for this roster given how much money he's making. Um, but I do want to point out that that scoring load is going to be missed if they trade him. It's going to be a huge problem because that is the one thing that I liked about the Gallinari signing they did was some scoring for them off the wing. Then the Brogdon trade happened, and that came out of nowhere. I was totally floored, and I was thrilled about it because of, again, I thought the ball movement. But they're still going to need scoring after the Jays, like after the Jays, a a third score. And I'm just not quite sure if the answer is on this roster or where it comes from because if it's not Brogdon, it doesn't feel like it's going to be. It's got to come from somewhere, and that person – Definitely isn't on the roster right now unless Sam Hauser becomes some some unbelievable like if he just turns into Austin Reeves. Like I just don't see that happening. And I think you have to remember there wasn't a flaw in how this roster was constructed, right? Like we're not sitting here saying, you know what, the Celtics just didn't have the right mix or they didn't have enough firepower or enough talent. That's mm-hmm. not what lost them the Eastern Conference Finals. What lost them the Eastern Conference Finals is that talent didn't show up, right, consistently enough. Like, Malcolm Brogdon got hurt. Okay, he kind of gets a pass. But, like, you know, if Jalen Brown has a average series for him, you're in the finals. Mm-hmm. The same way if Tatum has an average finals for you, you win the title last year. So what made the Celtics so good, for lack of a better sense, is how their roster was constructed. The three-guard trio – that you had is what made you so hard on a, you know, 82 game schedule. And it's what enabled you to get to the Eastern conference finals. I think people see them losing in game seven and say the mix isn't right. And I would argue the opposite. I think they finally found the right mix of talent around Tatum and Brown, but that mix of talent is only going to matter if when you're in these situations, people play up to their, ceiling right like if the Celtics lost to the heat with everybody firing on all cylinders you're like okay they don't have enough at their ceiling we have not seen them at their ceiling in both of the series that they've lost and the issues there are your two foundational pieces and I think because it's last year Tatum in the finals this year Brown in the Eastern Conference finals you really just have to take that on the chin and say we made the organizational decision to invest in these two players, that means the good when Tatum drops 50 in game seven and when Jalen's your best player in the finals, whatever. But it also means things like what we saw against the Heat, where your your second best player is almost unplayable. That's just the reality of investing in younger players, which is why it wouldn't shock me if they just bring, for the most part, bring everybody back and try to maybe see if Gallinari can fit the grant role if they don't match his restricted free agent offer because everything Brad has said since he got the job is we need to surround Tatum and Brown with the right mix. They finally have that right mix. I don't know if they're bailing on that after one season. All right, so let's uh, segue that well into when Steve Bullpet 
especially when he writes about the Celtics. When he writes in general, I pay attention. When he writes about the Celtics, I'm really all ears. And he has something for uh, heavy sports as we sit here. It was last night. I'm sure you guys have seen it. But he spoke with uh, a number of people, I believe, but one general manager in particular. And this was the quote. It's a little bit long. I'll read it to you. Uh, the quote is, I hear fans up there debating whether to give Jalen Brown the Supermax. It's five years, $290 million. But at some point, the numbers don't really matter, said one general manager. First of all, the guy is one of the better players in the league. Start there. I know people are upset about his last game. And sure, he was bad, but that was a team-wide collapse. Just take a step back, look at where he is, what he can do, the guy can play. But the main reason why everyone out here knows uh, they have to get something done with him is because you can never afford to lose an asset like that. Even if you sign him and things don't work out with your team down the line, you have a player of value. All-star players can attract free agents who want to play with them, or you can use your player as an asset in a trade. From everything I've heard and I know, Boston wants Brown. They see him as a big part of their future, but if things get messed up there, major injuries or things like that, you have the ability to make trades. Bottom line, you don't let talent walk or get devalued. So, Greeny, I I certainly sense you agree with that. I think there are a lot of people out there that do not agree with that, that are looking for Jalen Brown to be moved. Or like I I was watching TV the other night, and there was it was one of those sports show polls, and the poll was something like. You know, do you trade Jalen Brown? Do you offer Jalen Brown the Supermax? Or do you offer Jalen Brown something below the Supermax? And my my reaction, I almost screenshotted it, but I didn't feel like dealing with the brush back on Twitter. But my immediate reaction to that was, well, that third option isn't even an option. You cannot offer him below the Supermax. He just won't take it. He will say no, and he will wait for free agency. Your options are sign him to the supermax or do a sign and trade but there is there is no like offer him less than the supermax that's uh, everything about Jalen brown over years of talking to and about Jalen brown has screamed Jalen brown already feels disrespected he's not yeah. taking below the supermax when he's eligible for the supermax and if he is he's certainly not doing it in boston yeah I mean, first of all, I think we all have to agree that quote was clearly Danny Age, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, that was Danny Age. That, that's, that's who, I mean, we know him in bullpen or, you know, yeah. I mean, that was Danny Age. Just, Danny Age who said to Shaughnessy on the record the other day, by the way, that we all believe that uh, Joe Mazzula is a better head coach than he made. Right, like that's, like that was Danny Age. So yeah. we'll put that aside. It does not surprise me that Danny Age is a big Jalen Brown guy, given he drafted him. But when it comes to his extension, you know, I imagine without having any prior knowledge, this is how it goes, right? You're not offering him the normal, you know, non-max extension. Let's call that 190 mil. That, I mean, you just, you're dead on arrival if you do that. I think what Brad and Zarin will do is they'll say, okay, Jalen, here's what it looks, here's what our team looks like and what our plan is. If we offer you the 35% max, a 33%, like, I think they'll show him to say, hey, we're down to give you the super max. If we do that, the possibility that we may have to trade you in two years becomes, you know, much more of a realistic possibility. You may, you will not have control over where we send you. If that's somewhere you want to be, great. If it's the best package, we have to take it. If you then take let's say a 33% max. Here's the flexibility and what it could be. 
So I think while you're right, they can't offer him, you know, less than Supermax money in fear that he'll just say, well, screw you guys. I'm just going to play on my last year. I think it's reasonable to under to expect them to say, here's scenario X, Y, and Z. If you truly do want to be in Boston or if there's a part of you that wants to win here, here are the things that are possible with whatever you decide. If that's if that's the supermax, then you have to be open to potentially being moved in your age 28 season where you may go to San Antonio or and you're going to be locked into your deal for three more years given how your contract is set up. So while I think it's unlikely that they sign him for less than supermax, it would not surprise me if it's something like 33 or 32% as opposed to 35 if he's interested in having that flexibility for when that extension kicks in and then Tatum's kicks in the same season. Jalen's going for all of it. And I, yeah, what, if, if I'm Jalen Brown, if, if I'm Jalen Brown, my reaction to that is okay. Um, so is Jason going to take 33% too, or. But, but who knows? Like what if, what if that's the thing? What if they say, Hey, we've gotten the same. We like, what if, I mean, again, this is like ultimate Celtics fan fiction. Like everyone yeah. can acknowledge Let's do it, though. It's the but if they, but it, like for all we know, it's like, listen, guys, we can't give you both thirty-five percent, but we could both. We can do both at thirty-two or both at thirty-three. Like if Tatum and Brown are serious about staying together, is that entirely out of the realm of possibility? Like there is a precedent in NBA history of guys accepting slightly lower than super max max percentages. I think it's maybe 0.1% of, of, of probability, but even if Tatum isn't willing to do that, they're clearly not the same level of talent. So it's like Jalen, you know, you had an unbelievable year. You made all NBA in part because of what you did in part because of the games played numbers for people at your position. So maybe the middle ground is not the 30% max that other teams can give you. We're going to give you 33, 34%, but I don't know. I mean, it would not surprise me if he holds out and says, you're giving me the super max or you have to trade me this summer. And in that instance, I think they just fork over the super max money because like Danny Ainge said in that quote, you have to protect your asset. I'm not going to sit here and say Jalen Brown doesn't care about winning or doesn't care about winning in Boston. I wouldn't know. I'd like to believe both of those things are important to him. And every indication from him publicly is that those things are important to him, but are they more important than him fully cashing in? No. I'm not so sure. I, no. I, 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 I think he, yeah, I think the most realistic way this plays out is he says, okay, I get where you're coming from fully respected too. And from a team building perspective, you're making a lot of sense. Yeah. I want my money. I want my full boat. And yeah. uh, and if you got to trade me in a couple of years, then hopefully we win here in the next couple of years. And if we don't, we don't. But let, here's what I, I want to ask both of you, because I think that is most likely where we're headed, right? I mean, he took a discount the first time around. You're not getting a double discount on a, you know, all NBA player about to enter his prime. But don't you think that when the Celtics entered last offseason, they looked at the landscape and said, we could live in a world where Jalen Brown makes all NBA and activates this super max extension. If they were not 
committed to paying that, why did they not trade him before last season? So when they decided to not trade for Durant or any other player and they kept him on the roster, to me that said they are now open and willing and have a path in the event he makes All-NBA because what front office is going to want to be caught blindsided in that position of, crap, we didn't think he would be this good and now he is. Like, does Mike Zarin and Brad Stevens seem like the type of people to you that are going to be so, like, caught off guard of a potential situation? Correct me if I'm wrong, because I I very well might be wrong about this, but isn't the answer to the question that the CBA realities that they're facing now, they don't even have the full depiction of what it's going to look like, but the CBA realities that they are facing, they didn't know about at that time? Like, yeah, but, I don't think, think, of, they, but think of what those they are. Didn't know back then it was going to be as bad and as tight as what they're learning it's going to be. Right, but think of what those penalties are. Those penalties are you can't use your taxpayer MLE and you can't sign buyout guys. Well, the Celtics just went a whole season without their taxpayer MLE guy. And what buyout guy did they bring in that made any sort of difference? So, yes, there's future draft pick. You know, you can't trade those out seven years in advance. Sure. But at the end of the day, if Wick is committed to paying the dollar amount, the second apron penalties, like everyone is saying, oh, the Celtics aren't going to be able to fill out their roster, you know, because of the second apron. Well, that's not entirely true. They just won't be able to add a guy for $5 million to round out their bench. They'll be able to sign players and go over the luxury tax and pay whatever the penalty is. So in that instance, that was still going to be true regardless of the new CBA. So I look at it as, you know, Brad and Wick and ownership is probably like, hey, while we don't know what the, the apron might be, and we don't know what, you know, penalties there might be, the fact of the matter is we're going to be over the cap regardless, and you're going to be a penalty team regardless whether Jalen makes all NBA or not. So that's why when they have an opportunity to bring in because if you're trading Jalen Brown this summer, you're not getting Kevin Durant. So it's like if you are willing to bypass that last summer for the chance, and you need Jalen to have an all-NBA type year if you're going to contend for a title, to me that says you're making the conscious decision to live and you're prepared for a scenario in which both players are on Supermax money because if not, you would have traded them. Well, I, I guess the answer to your question, I don't have the answer, but I, I would think the answer to your question is, does Wick Grosbeck, the man who, per Jared Weiss, had to walk into the Celtics locker room down 3-0 and tell his guys to play with balls, <laughs> does Wick Grosbeck believe that he has a winning roster? Because they fell short against the Warriors, they fell shorter against the Heat, and now are going to have to do something to this roster in the offseason, seemingly, whether it's unloading one of those guards or whatever it is, you know, maybe Grant leaves. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's not going to be the exact same team that they are running back. Maybe Gallinari, who was never here, is going to be gone in actuality. Something is going to be different. Not necessarily as seismic as, you know, Brown or Smart or Rob or something like that, but somewhere, you know, down the rotation, something is going to happen to this roster. Does Wick believe that this is a team that can get over the hump and win a championship? Because that ultimately is going to, you know, determine whether or not they're willing to pay the freight that comes along with it. And I, 
I don't know what he believes at this point because I don't know what I believe and I'm not writing the checks. Yeah, I just think all we can do is go off his his past word where he said, if this team is contending for titles, they'll pay whatever. Well, while it's true they've fallen short, I think you could classify these last two seasons as contending for an NBA title. That doesn't mean they've won it, but, you know, when you're in the finals and then you're in the final four, a game away from it, in my eyes, you're contending for a title. And I think when the main reasons you're coming up short are your two foundational pieces, you just have to take it on the chin. And I think Wick understands, and I would hope that Wick understands that and understands that, hey, you know, winning in the NBA is expensive. Who's the last team that had, you know, that is going to win a title and consistently contend that isn't a luxury tax paying team? And it's only going to get harder for you to be a high salary team moving forward. So I think you sign Jalen to the Supermax, you see where you are in two years, and if you have to peel something off at that point, you do it. But they're not going to, there's no way for them to add difference making talent over these next two years without trading foundational pieces. And I don't think their foundation is at a place where they need to peel off major pieces. So I think you go with it. You hope that he understands that. And I mean, it's anybody, again, I'm not writing the checks. You're not writing the checks, but it's like things can change in the NBA very quickly. And I think that is not lost on Brad. It's not lost on Wick. Like as soon as you think that you're going to keep being in these final fours, you trade a major piece, a guy gets hurt or it doesn't fit with whoever you bring in. And now you have Jason Tatum starting to look at the clock. And I think that is the biggest concern out of all of this. They basically need to do whatever the hell Jason Tatum wants until he signs his Supermax extension. Yeah. And that's, and that's where it is right there for me. I think they're going to sign Jalen because Jason wants them to. I think Jason loves Jalen Brown. He talks about it. He talked about it after the game, I think after game seven, how much he loves Jalen. Um, those guys have been through a lot of battles, a lot of wars together. They've been able to experience some really hard times together. And usually that's what brings greatness out of people. So I, as much as we talk about this, uh, it would be a, hey, Jalen, or hey, Jason, do you do you like playing with Jalen Brown? Do you want him here? You do? Okay, we're done here. Like, that's that's all. That's going to be a quick conversation. because Yeah, I, think, would, I would say that, the same conversation they're going to have with Brown where it's like, hey, here are the different scenarios based on the contract. I guarantee you they're going to do the same thing with Tatum and say, hey, if we do this, this is what it's going to mean for your supporting cast. Are you okay with that? And if he says yes, they're going to do it. Well, here's the thing about the like, trading Jalen is is really difficult. Everybody's had the oh trade like Zanis ran with this Kaufman the other day of you know I support the trade Jalen Brown and for the number three pick and Anthony Simons from from Portland. Well, that's not the full trade if that's the trade because there's no way you're bringing on Amen or Oswar Thompson or Brandon Miller to be the centerpiece to tell Jason, hey Tatum, yeah, we got you this this rookie back here. He's going to be just that's not the trade. If that's the trade, then there's another. That three piece is going somewhere else, and I'm not quite sure what that looks like. So if you're going to do the the Portland made-up trade, and they're not trading for Dame either because it's harder to build a team around Dame and Tatum, I think, at whatever. Well, not only that, but – His contract number is ridiculous, like, and he's and, older, and he's a small yeah. guard. Haven't we watched him – we've watched – how many small guards have we watched the past decade in this particular town get killed at the end of the postseason by usually Eric Spolstra – 
for for just not being able to hold up on the defensive end. Like I, I've had enough of that. I'm done with as much. And I love Dame. Like I'm not trying to. Dame's a great player, but that's not the trade. Like that, that's a very short sighted trade if you're to do that. The only one coffin that made sense to me, and I was kind of throwing it around a little bit, was if you could find a way to flip number three. Because I definitely don't want to trade Jalen to any Eastern Conference team. If you could flip number three and other pieces to get back Mikhail Bridges from Brooklyn, because that'd be something I would be very interested in. Because Mikhail is at least that defensive guy that Jalen can't be anymore. Like, Mikhail is just a significantly better three-point defender, uh, up and down the roster defender. He's just better. And, and maybe someone that's a little bit more like, hey, I'm okay standing over here on big offensive possession. Like, I don't know, maybe it fits better, but I still don't think they, they're going to trade Jalen anyway. So, but that's. No, and and I think people forget when it comes to, I mean, whether it's Park or anybody else going on TV begging for Damon Lillard, the Blazers cannot extend Jalen Brown this summer. So, why are they going to trade maybe the greatest player in franchise history for someone who they have no guarantee will be there past this? So, even that alone ruins that whole idea that people, I guess, haven't seemed to grasp yet. I just don't think right now, if you're trading him, it's on an expiring deal. You are not getting a talent in return that is good enough to warrant not just keeping it together and potentially trading him down the line if you get to that, you know, one day. I just, you're asking, you're losing more than you're gaining. And I think people are just, fixated on this idea that different means better when I think that it is for that could not be the furthest from the truth right we've seen it when we went through the different point guards right first was oh we got to go from Isaiah to Kyrie we got to bring in this different point guard that didn't matter then it was oh we got to trade in a different vibe in Kenba that didn't matter it's like when you find something that works you don't bail on it just because your second best player had a bad game seven and bad series. You have to look at it on the bigger picture of how this team was constructed and what made them good in the first place is still going to exist if you keep this team together for the most part entering next season. You're still going to have the defensive versatility. You're still going to have, you know, the offensive production of, you know, Brogdon's still on the team of the second unit. Like everything just doesn't evaporate because you lost in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. And I think, you know, people are just, whenever there's a sort of failure, they just can't grasp or accept the fact that it's okay to take another swing with internal development when you found a mix that clearly works. All right. We don't have too much time left on this show. And thank you very much, Ev. Uh, Something greeny that we were talking about in our last show just a few days ago, and it's Evolved a little bit. So Washburn had the report about multiple Celtics assistants leaving for Houston to join Ime Odoka's staff. We had Jared Weiss on, and he didn't fully refute the report so much as said, I think some of this might be a little bit premature. Let's chill. Let's see some of this play out. There has since been another report from, I forgive me, I forget the name, but someone over at Hoops Hype who, who has reported that, in fact, three assists uh, assistants are going to Houston. There's another one or two that are still basically contemplating their futures. And uh, n- nothing is, has been finalized in any way, shape, or form anyway. So as we have this conversation, and we are also talking 
uh, you know, only a couple of days in the wake of Brad Stevens meeting the media and officially putting the organization's backing behind Joe Missoula. So there is no mystery there. Missoula will be back next year. How significant, if at all, but I'm going to ask it in a leading way, how significant is the red flag of assistants looking to jump ship on Missoula right now, leaving him with, uh, I, I know he'll fill out the staff, but right now leaving him with next to nothing next to him. I mean, what what does that say about the situation in Boston and the belief in Missoula? I mean, I think little to nothing, right? I look at it as guys were hired under Adoka. Adoka has another job and needs assistance. I feel like it happens all the time. When guys leave, like, it's not – I would expect the people who expected to work under Ime, if they have an opportunity to do so, would do it. There's also no state – for a rebuilding team versus a contending team? Yeah, but I mean, who – I mean – I don't know, but maybe if you're looking to become a head coach and you're Ben Sullivan, let's say, and the Rockets drastically improved, maybe that is more encouraging to a potential team to bring you in for an interview as, oh, you were on the Celtics who have a stacked roster? Like, you know, no kidding, you won a lot. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's more to me of, A, they were probably like, well, we got passed over for Joe anyways. We also wanted to work with Emei in the first place. So that's not as really like, I don't think that's a referendum on the Celtics locker room or culture or anything like that. But at the same time, if on one hand we're seeing, we're sitting here saying the Celtics assistants clearly weren't good enough to win. We need to replace them. Why would I get bent out of shape if those same assistants are now leaving to go somewhere else? It's just, to me, it's, it's not. It's just Ime's guy is going to join Ime as it is everyone needs is doing this mass exodus of, you know, the Celtics. Now, if you're trying to tell me they're not going to be able to hire anyone of substance because nobody wants to join Boston, I think that's the bigger discussion. Not why are Ime's guys leaving to go join Ime's staff. I want to see who they bring in, right? Vogel's out. He's the head coach in in Phoenix. Phoenix. I think we're all assuming Steven Silas is going to get the nod given how, you know, Brad brought him in, you know, b- before the playoffs started. So to me, and I thought it was interesting how James Borrego, you know, found a new home in New Orleans. So there are guys that are finding other places that aren't Boston. That's where I think the focus should be as opposed to guys who are on EMA staff going to join him. I think that's just what happens in the NBA. It's just not ideal, you know, for Joe to get the job like two weeks before the season starts, basically, or whatever the, the you know, the amount of time. And now in his first full off season has to replace basically the entire coaching staff. Like it's just not, just not ideal if you're trying to set up a program for success. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just puts a lot on Joe and, and for well, a- let me ask you this. How many of, how many of the, of the assistants stayed on from Brad to email? Right? Did he not build out his entire staff his first year? Yeah, but that wasn't largely him leaving. That was that was a season veteran, you know, assistant coach versus Joe, who's like you know was just handed the job, uh, you know, uh, and doesn't have any real coaching experience, you know, outside of Division Two Frontier or whatever. Like, I mean, Ime had been on several different benches, has been in several different positions, and learned from several different guys that have done really well for themselves. You know, it's. It's a little different, you know, it's for, for Joe, 
I don't know if he has that many connections around the league. I'm sure he knows a lot of people, but he may, between San Antonio and Brooklyn and Philly, has been able to establish a bunch of different connections. You know, like Ben Sullivan came from the Bucks. Uh, you know, uh, Mighty Mouse comes from. Uh, I was going to uh, say, who's, who's Joe's name? Stoudemire. Yeah, right. The WCC and comes aboard and then the Jets for the ACC. You know, again, I don't know if Missoula has that, that type of pull. I, I'm obviously very curious to see what happens. I just don't think it's really ideal for a now a second year head coach to put the throw this on top of the, the hey, like you have all this other stuff to worry about too. I don't I just not, I don't think it's an ideal scenario. Yeah, I would think it would be Brad goes to Joe and says, all right, Joe, tell me the type of coaching you want. And Joe will say, all right, I want X, Y, and Z. And then it's Brad and Brad's relationship with all these people that bring him in. Like, I don't think Joe Mazzula has a relationship with Steven Silas that we know about. And yet there was Steven Silas. And I think, you know, he would be a quality name. He didn't work out as a head coach, but they were kind of built to lose. And I think everybody around Houston sort of talks about him in a green, in a favorable light when it comes to being an assistant. So I think from a relationship standpoint, you're banking on what Brad has built from the type of coach they get, I think is where Missoula's preference could come in because you're right. Like who did he build a relationship with sitting on, you know, the second bench, but at the same time, opposing coaches could look at this and say, Hey, if I want to get back to being a head coach, maybe I want to join Missoula staff because I know that my input is going to be needed. And if we're successful, maybe that makes them more attractive. So I just think it'll, it's impossible to know who what's possible because we don't know the inner workings of relationships in the NBA. I think we just have to wait to see who they bring in and then evaluate it at that point, because I do think we'll be able to tell right away if the staffs are comparable to what, I mean, because even the drop off from what Ime had with Missoula and Hardy and Stoudemire and all that to what we got last year was a noticeable drop off. And we just have to wait to see who the names end up being. There's been a lot of Joe Missoula's here because he's Jason Tatum's guy. I don't know what level of truth there is in that. Do you believe, because I don't presume to think that you necessarily know either, but do you believe that Missoula ultimately has the same level of backing from his players in that room that he has from Brad Stevens, who very clearly has nothing but support from Missoula? Um, I don't know about the same, but I think he has enough of it from the players to warrant him still being the coach. So it's like, if, if, if Brad's at a 10, maybe the players are at an eight, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, you know, they were all pretty vocal in, you know, being behind Joe and supporting Joe and all that stuff. They did have their best year in both individually and as a team in like, you know, 10 years almost. So I think if you don't have your superstar buy-in, it doesn't matter if Brad loves the guy, right? Like you need both to have a successful partnership. And I think, you know, like Joe Mazzulla is not why they didn't make the NBA finals. As much as people want to harp in on him, he's just not. That is not why the Celtics are watching on TV. So I think they understand that. And I think, you know, given the circumstances he got the job in and the success that they had, even with that, 
I think it's enough for the players in the building to say, okay, you know, there are things we may need to tweak, whether that's be more defensive oriented, whatever. Like to me, that was all just like excuse making because you lost in game seven. Like they were playing defense in games three through six and it got back into the series. So that's a whole nother topic, but I think there's enough buy-in from players. The big one is Wick is he's the wild card, right? Because Wick could just say, I don't give a crap about if you guys want Joe or not, you know, I'm putting my foot down. But once he got the confirmation from Brad that he was coming back, that told me that Wick said, okay, I'm in it for at least one more year. So it would be, it would take them having to be like a lottery team by the all-star break for, I, for them to like, Fire Joe or anything drastic like that. Yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere. No, but that's—I mean—that's—that's that's not new. I've felt that way for all year. <laughs> we, we've been sitting here saying Joe Mazzulla is going to be this team's head coach next year. Now, granted, we didn't think—you know—we thought the playoffs would be a little less rocky, probably, and maybe they—they'd be positioning themselves right now for a championship. But uh, you know. So it goes. Have anything to add before we get out of here? No, we're good. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll do it again. Next my head week. back in the oven. So no, I'm 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 doing all right. <laughs> Pretty much. Just in time. Make sure you uh you know get your uh, head out in time for game two of the NBA Finals. That does not feature the Boston Celtics. All right. Uh, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We greatly appreciate you listening, paying attention, being here with us. And, uh, hopefully this is therapeutic, not only for the three of us, but for you as well. Just talking some of this stuff out. And, uh, you know, we, we will be, we, we will gather. We will, we will, when, when this team finally hoists banner 18, you know, raises that banner, all the guests from this show, we're all going to sort of get together and, uh, and there will be one large video of us just dancing. Just, just, just celebrating with Lucky. All right. I can't lie. This, this did not make me feel better. I can't. No, lie. <laughs> really, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I, I, I might feel worse. Actually, thanks for listening. We'll see you later.